0: Good morning, family of God. I have a question, church family. Are you eager to hear a word from the Lord this morning? And I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm also eager to hear from God. And I want us together to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that our Father loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So I want to invite you where you are just to take a moment to pray that the Holy Spirit will help you to Open your ears to hear the word of the Lord and open your eyes to see Jesus in a fresh way this morning. And after I give you a moment to pray silently, I will pray for us and then we will dive into God's word together. Most High God, we worship you. You are the creator, the savior and the king, and we give you all glory this morning. And we just confess that we need your help and we want your help. We want to hear from you today. So I pray that you would overcome all the schemes of the evil one, that you would forgive our sins and you would pour out your spirit in a fresh way among us this morning. Please open our eyes to see Jesus clearly open our ears to hear the Word of God, give us understanding, shine your light into our brains, give us soft hearts to trust and obey and be transformed by your Word and your Spirit. And Lord, I know that for a variety of reasons, some of us are tired. Sometimes the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So we pray that you would give us energy and grace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well. Some of you were here last week and so you heard that in the verses immediately preceding the verses we just read, Jesus sent out twelve of his disciples whom he called apostles and he sent them on a mission. And their mission was to walk around from town to town, village to village. And everywhere they go, they are proclaiming the kingdom of God. Which means God the king has come to the earth in a new way. He's on the move and he's shaking everything up. So everybody say, Jesus is the king. And as he sent them to proclaim that message, he gave them authority to do some miracles that were showing the reality of their words. And he told them to heal the sick. And he gave them authority to cast out demons. So they're going around proclaiming the gospel. At the same time, we learned in those verses that uh, Herod, the Tetrarch, an evil Insecure, jealous, power-hungry king has killed John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, great prophet, friend and mentor to some of the disciples of Jesus. And so now we read in verse 10 that the apostles have come back from their mission. Look at verse 10, it says, on their return. That means on their return from this little mission, they've been walking around, proclaiming the proclaiming the the gospel, healing the sick. We don't know how long they were gone, but we can imagine it was several weeks. And they've been busy, 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 working hard. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Now, you can imagine this. If Jesus sent you on a mission, and you were going around, walking from town to town, walking from village to village. Everywhere you went, you were preaching. And some places, everybody believed that it was awesome. Some places, they rejected you and ran you out of town and threw stuff at you. Some places, the sick were healed and demons came out. Some places, uh, they didn't get to experience the miracles of God because they had no faith. But you were walking around, you were dependent on the hospitality of people who were receiving you. But all day, every day, you were busy working and finally you come back. Do you imagine you might feel a little exhausted? Imagine you might feel some mixed emotions. You might feel excited. You might feel tired. You might feel confused. You might have a lot of questions. As a matter of fact, if we compare the accounts of this moment in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, we learn that they were totally exhausted. They'd been so busy that they didn't even have time to eat a lot of the time. So they're physically drained. They're spiritually probably both excited and discouraged. And then they find out the news that John is dead. So they're grieving. There's a lot of emotion going on. And it says at the end of verse 10 that Jesus took them and withdrew. He withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Withdrew. That means it's retreat time. It's time to get alone. Jesus is a compassionate master. He's a compassionate Lord. He sends his disciples to work hard, but then he takes care of us. Who's glad Jesus gives you a break sometimes? So he took them away to have a break, to retreat. This is time to rest. Mark chapter 6, he says he took them to rest. This is recuperation time. They probably wanted to spend some time in prayer. They probably wanted to spend some time telling stories about what they'd been doing on their mission and processing together. They're exhausted. They need a break. But, verse 11 says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. So the word got out where Jesus was taking his apostles for a break. The word got out, and everybody ran to them. We know they rushed, because as the story goes, we found out they didn't even have time to pack food, right? They're just so excited for Jesus. And a little bit lower in our text, it says that they went to a desolate place. You see that at the end of verse 12? A desolate place. They're in the wilderness. If we compare the version of this story in John chapter 6, we also know it says they were on a mountain. So we can kind of picture this if we've been to western Oklahoma out near Lyon. Anybody ever traveled out to see the Wichita Mountains? Show of hands, several of you have. Maybe you drove up to the top of Mount Scott. I think that's our only actual legitimate mountain in Oklahoma. Barely like a few inches over the limit. So, but if you've been out there, you probably can picture what's happening. They're in a mountainous, hilly type area. But it's desolate, meaning picture rocks, picture dirt. Don't picture bubbling springs. There's no food out here. There's no water out here. And yet the crowds are so desperate and the news about Jesus, his reputation has been spreading that they're running out, flocking out there to get to Jesus and his apostles because they need his help so desperately. And a lot of them come. You'll notice the text says there were 5,000 men, not 5,000 people because they were counting families. So these are considered, you know, men were the heads of the household in this Culture, and so counting 5,000 men probably means there's like 20,000 people out there, give or take. It's a big crowd flocking out to Jesus. Now, let's have a moment of honesty. If you're physically exhausted because you've been taking care of everybody and preaching the gospel on an emotional roller coaster, plus you're grieving, and you go on a little personal retreat to get refreshed and come out and serve people, and when you get out to the retreat center, there's 20,000 people demanding your time all day, how are you going to feel? Show of hands, who's going to be grumpy? Some of us are going to be cranky in that situation. But notice what it says. I love the second part of verse 11. It says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. Mm. Everybody say welcomed. That word is one of two words that really jumped out and grabbed me as I was meditating on this verse this week. Thinking about us as a church family. Welcomed. In Jesus, we encounter the welcoming God. We encounter the God who welcomes needy, desperate people who come to him. Let's say it again. Everybody say welcomed. we got to think about this word. What is the opposite of welcoming? Well, the opposite of welcoming them would have been sending them away. Rebuking them. We could say the opposite of welcoming them would be rejecting them. And rejection is probably one of our least favorite words. It's probably our biggest fear. A lot of us, if we're honest, anybody hate to be rejected? Let's take another show of hands. Okay, lots of hands going up. And some of us go through life feeling very rejected by people and sometimes fearing that we'll be rejected by God. As a matter of fact, we have mentioned several times recently... This reality of loneliness, which is such a big deal in our culture right now, and I think it was a couple of weeks ago we mentioned a, a recent report by the Surgeon General of the United States saying that the next epidemic in, the, in America is this epidemic of loneliness, and saying having good, healthy relationships is better, is more important for your health than eating, eating well, and exercising, and being super lonely and isolated is worse for your health than smoking cigarettes. And saying, but the problem is Americans all over the place are feeling isolated and lonely. It's a problem, isn't it? And we're experiencing it in an acute way because of all sorts of stuff. We can talk about social media, and we can talk about the pandemic, and we can talk about all sorts of different things, the breakdown of our communities. But the point is, we're lonely. And we're feeling in a very acute way something that is a deep part of the human condition. I think ever since Genesis chapter 3, human beings have been lonely. Because in Genesis chapter 3... The first human beings rebelled against God. And when they sin, when they rebel against God, when they choose evil, immediately God's peace begins to break down in his good creation because of human evil. And one of the main symptoms of that broken peace with God is Alienation. People are cut off. Their their relationship with God is broken. God keeps loving them, but they've run away from God's love. And as we get alienated from God, we often get alienated from one another. And we can see this all over in our society. We see the problem of alienated families. Friendships that used to be close and tight, and now they are estranged. Marriages that felt like they were going to be perfect forever, and now... Um, they're cold and distant or they, they end in separation. Broken relationships. We could be in a crowd. We could be around people and still feel really lonely. And the text says, Jesus welcomed them. In Jesus, we find the welcoming God. Church, I want you to hear... Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, which means here we're seeing a God who does not do what we're afraid he's going to do. We're afraid he's going to say, no, you're too sinful. We're afraid he's going to say, I don't have time for you. We're afraid He thinks everybody else is spiritual and good and worth saving, but we're too messed up and unspiritual and tormented by doubts, and He's going to reject us. And what we find in Jesus is that when He's taken away His disciples to have a little alone time and retreat, and sinful, broken, desperate people come to Him, He welcomes them. He's the welcoming God. And if we're going to experience healing from our epidemic of loneliness, from this experience of alienation, we do need other human relationships. Isn't it good to have good friends, church? Isn't it good to experience deep, warm, loving relationships? But some of you can testify, even the best friendships really can't fill our need. Even the best marriages can't really fully satisfy. Even the best parent-children relationships can't get rid of that ache for deeper relationship that we have. Only the love of God can fully satisfy. The root of our loneliness is this deep intuitive awareness. We need relationship with an infinite love. We need to know God. And the devil wants to tell us that if we come to him, we're too sinful, we're too broken. He doesn't have interest in messed up people like us. But Jesus is going to go all the way to the cross to make a way for sinners to be welcomed by a holy God. He is willing to pay every price to welcome you into his presence. And some of you have a hard time hearing that. You have a hard time believing that. So you need to help one another. So turn to your neighbor and say, God wants to welcome you. And now you need to turn to your other neighbor and say it with more enthusiasm. Because that was a little, you know, it was a little something-something. Turn to the other side and say, God wants to welcome you. And and one of our, you know, some of our Christian cliches are not very good, but some of them are true, okay? One of our Christian cliches that is true is this. God says, come as you are, and he welcomes you, but he doesn't leave you as you are, right? So the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus died on the cross so sinners can be welcomed by a holy God. Anybody who comes with all your brokenness and all your sin and all your shame and all your guilt to the presence of Jesus says, Forgive me, heal me, cleanse me. He heals you. He forgives you. He welcomes you. He embraces you. And he's going to keep doing that for the rest of your life. And one of the symptoms of that is you're going to be transformed and changed and learn how to walk in faith, hope, and love. Jesus is the welcoming God. And by the way, a little side note here. Who would like to share the love of Jesus with our community? Okay. We want to share the love of Jesus in our community. We just said Jesus is the welcoming God. If you want to connect the dots right here, I encourage you. If you've got a Bible, just flip over to Romans for a second. Go to chapter 15. A little verse I would encourage you to hide in your heart to think about is Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Which says, which welcome, says one welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Our key word is welcome. Everybody say welcome. In Jesus, we find the God who welcomes sinners. He welcomes annoying people. Now, I don't know if all these people were annoying by their personality, but they crashed this, the, the quiet retreat. And that's an annoying thing to do, Right. So if Jesus welcomes us when we're annoying, that means we're being challenged here to welcome even when people are annoying. Amen? It can be difficult. Welcome one another when Christ has welcomed you. Did you always deserve to be welcomed when Jesus welcomed you? Sometimes when Jesus welcomed you, did you leave a mess at his house? Yes, you did. But he welcomed you. He showed you his love. And so now he's saying, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, sometimes when we start feeling really lonely, we start feeling really needy. And then we start getting really focused on our needs. And I'll change this to the first person singular so you don't feel like you're getting called out. When I start feeling really lonely, I start feeling really needy. I start getting really focused on my needs and I can start acting really selfish. When I'm focused on my needs. And that could play out in our families. I'm feeling lonely, so I come home and want my family to meet my needs. And all these other people in this house think that their needs are what needs to be met right here, right? And pretty soon we're just needy people banging against each other. And you know that same thing can happen to church. Hey, guess what? If we all come to church on Sunday and everybody's feeling lonely, looking around to see if anybody else wants to welcome us and meet our needs, is anybody going to feel like they're welcomed and their needs are met? If we're all waiting for everybody else to take the initiative then we're all going to keep feeling the same way. And I thank God there's a lot of really welcoming, hospitable people in this church. But I feel like we can grow. You feel like we can grow in being more welcoming, church family? I think we can grow in how we welcome one another. And man, it's my prayer for our church that if anybody ever comes up in here, they're new and they're seeking God. Not only are they going to hear the Word of God preached, not only are they going to have opportunities to sing songs to God, but also they're going to experience the welcoming love of Jesus by the way that we reach out and welcome them. And our text, Romans fifteen seven, said, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of who? For the glory of God, which means it's an act of worship. Which means one manifestation of this, I mean, we can welcome people all week long. I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, but since we're here and it's Sunday morning, I might as well make an application, right? One way that we can worship God is that when we come to church on Sunday morning, we're not thinking primarily, I'm going to get my needs met. We're going thinking, I'm going to worship God, I want to hear from God, I want to be transformed from God, and I want to be on the lookout for people that I don't know yet to think, how can I reach out in love and grab hold of them? And if that feels very uncomfortable for you, that's okay. Jesus calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. It's discipleship, it's a spiritual discipline, it's an exercise of worship. And in so doing, what's happening is we're actually opening our hearts so that the welcoming of God, the welcoming God can heal us. And touch our hearts and then free us to participate in Him working through us to bring healing to a lonely world that needs to experience the love of God. So everybody say, welcome. Okay, end of verse 11 says, and He welcomed them. And then it says, He spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you will recognize a pattern here. Everywhere Jesus goes, He speaks about the kingdom of God. He speaks words of truth. He tells people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he doesn't just have words. He has actions. This is a living, active faith that meets people at their point of need and brings healing not only spiritually and intellectually, but also physically. All right. We're going to do a little pop quiz of theology. Y'all can yell out the answer if you know. Who created your soul? Very good. Who created your body? So does God love your soul? Does God love your body? Does Jesus want to heal your soul? Does Jesus want to heal your body? And of course we know all of our healing right now, we experience deep salvation in Jesus, but we're looking forward to our perfect healing when Jesus comes back. But he cares about you as a whole person. And his disciples, he calls us to love the world in this holistic way. Now, what I want you to do though is use your imagination to think about what this would be like. It says, he spoke to them in the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. We just said there's probably 15, 20, 25,000 people out here. They're in a desolate place. Rocky terrain. Dirt. No water. A whole lot of people. If Jesus took like 30 seconds for each one to be like, you're healed. Go and sin no more. Walk over here. You're healed. Go and sin no more. That's a long day, isn't it? Somebody could do the math for that on that real quick. That's a long day. But you know Jesus, every time I read him in the Gospels, he's paying attention to each individual. He's spending time with them. So you can imagine, if you're one of the twelve apostles, for the last few weeks you've been walking around all day, preaching all day working long, 14, 15, 16 hour days I, I would imagine, they're exhausted the, the gospel said they've been so busy they often hadn't had term, time to eat they're emotionally drained, they're physically drained and they get out, Jesus says you're going on a retreat and you're like, yes, some time to rest and process and you get there, there's 20,000 people and Jesus spends time to teach them and to heal them, and he's paying attention to every individual, and now you start to think, okay Jesus uh, remember that retreat we were going to have? Remember that rest you promised us? And they're starting to maybe feel a little cranky. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them had thoughts like this running through their head. I guess the love of Jesus is for everybody else except for us. As his apostle, I guess guess my job is to be worn out and miserable for the whole life. So that he can work through me. I can be his little sponge that he squeezes out to take care of other people. Some of you are familiar with thoughts like that. I bet they were thinking some stuff like that. And that may be reflected in verse 12 when we read, Now the day began to wear away. Hour after hour is passing. They're still out there. Jesus is still teaching people. Jesus is still healing people. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Jesus Let's be practical. Jesus, let's be practical. You know, there's nothing wrong with being practical, and at a certain level, the disciples are just being considerate. They're just being prudent. They're thinking about the well-being of people. We don't want anybody fainting out here in the desert. But at another level, this reveals that they have not yet really grasped whose company they are keeping. They haven't really understood yet what it means when they say the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. They have seen Jesus heal sick people. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've even experienced God working through them to heal sick people and cast out demons. But they haven't seen a feeding miracle yet and they seem to still be placing limits in their minds on what Jesus can do. So at a certain natural level, what they're thinking is perfectly right, but at a deeper spiritual level, it, it is recognizing that they haven't fully understood their own message yet. And Jesus responds in verse 13 by saying, You give them something to eat. I encourage you to circle that word, you. You give them something to eat. What often happens in the Christian life and throughout Christian history is, that God's people become aware of desperate needs in the world, of which there are many. And we begin to feel burdened by those needs. And sometimes we begin to cry out to God, God, why won't you solve this problem? And, and the, the word that the Lord begins to reveal to us is, I have sent some special agents in to work on this problem. And they are you. Someone wrote a book a while back called Becoming the Answer to Our Own Prayers. I haven't read that book, so I'm not endorsing it, but I thought it was a good title. You give them something to eat. Now, if we're just looking at the natural level, this is impractical. Fifteen, twenty thousand people out here. The apostles could not possibly... Have carried enough food. As I was meditating on this, Melissa, I was thinking about you all week. Because some of us just got back from Falls Creek, from camp. And there was, what, 40 of us? I don't know, something like 40 of us. And Melissa was our camp cook, along with Jasmine and Angelica. We should clap for them. If you weren't there, you can still imagine. Feeding all those hungry teenagers all week. They were working early. They were working late. They did hard work. That was a lot of food. And there was only 40 of us, right? Can you imagine trying to lug all that stuff out to the wilderness? Times 5,000. That's not practical. Even if there's grocery stores, you're going to need a few box trucks to make a lot of runs to town. That's not practical, Jesus. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go buy food for all these people. And that last part, you shouldn't read it as, unless you should read it as like sarcastic, right? Right? Unless you want to go buy food for all these people. If you go compare John's version of this, there's a few things you learn. One thing you learn is that those five loaves and two fish came from an unnamed little boy who's the only buddy who grabbed lunch to this revival service, okay? That unnamed little boy had five loaves and two fish. Another thing that you get is more of a conversation in which you can hear something of the fear of the disciples. He's saying, listen, if we had a year's wages, that wouldn't be enough to buy food for all these people. We've only got a little bit. Jesus, you're asking us to take everything that we have and spend it. And when it's done, we're still going to be exhausted. We're still going to be hungry. Our needs are still not going to be met. And we won't even have put a dent in this huge problem. There's fear, and I think that you can kind of hear in it this concern. I guess Jesus loves everybody else, but not us. I guess if you're far from God, he has concern from you. But if you're one of those that has gotten close enough to him to have the privilege of him working through you, then he doesn't care about your needs. I feel like that's what's going on in their hearts. But they bring five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Now... The spiritual lesson here is clear, it's obvious, it's deep. If you've been to church, you've heard sermons about it before. And we need to keep hearing it over and over and over and over again. Here's the lesson. We're doing quizzes today, so here's a multiple choice one. What's better, a million dollars in your hands or two cents in Jesus' hand? You got it. What's better, a thousand well-equipped workers in their own strength or five or six struggling people having a hard time getting along with each other trying to manage their own emotions that are filled with the Holy Spirit. The good one, right? A little bit in Jesus' hands is better than a lot in our hands. They bring it to Jesus. Jesus in verse 14 says, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and they all sat down. Verse 16 Gets us to the climax. I want you to picture verse 16. Picture the mountain. Picture the rocks. Picture the desolate place. Picture thousands of people scattered around in these groups of 50 or so each. They're all trying to find a rock to sit on. They're all starting to mumble and talk. And in the midst of all that, somebody brings five loaves and two fish and Jesus takes them in his hand. I don't know how big these loaves are, but small enough, Jesus can take it all in his hands. Verse 16 says, "And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Can you picture it? This is a very 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 holy moment. It's holy because we know what's about to happen. A miracle. The bread is going to be multiplied, the fish is going to be multiplied. Everybody's going to eat. But it's holy more than that because of who is holding the bread. Listen, this this is why the disciples did not need to be afraid. And Christian, this is why you don't need to be afraid. The guy holding the five loaves and two fish in his hands is the same guy who created the heavens and the earth. He's the guy who made the fields where the wheat grows. He's the guy who made the rivers that water the fields. He's the guy who made human beings in their own image so they could figure out how to harvest that stuff and cook it, right? This is the God of bread. He's got bread on lockdown. He's the one who made oceans and lakes and filled them with fish. The creator of heaven and earth is holding some of his bread in his hands. He doesn't even need the bread. He could have done it without the little boy's basket, right? At the beginning of it all, he spoke the cosmos into existence. And year after year, he causes the earth to sprout and grow. And, and he's feeding 8 billion people on the planet every single day right now. Doing that in miniature on this occasion is no big deal for Jesus, is what I'm trying to get you to say. The creator of the universe, the word by whom all things were made and for all, whom all things were made, has become flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the God-man, fully human, fully God. And that's who we're talking about when we read verse 16. Taking the five loaves of the two fish, he looked up to heaven. You're picturing him looking up? An ordinary guy. Probably brown, dark skin, probably had a beard, probably dirty from walking around all the time. He looks up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This moment is pointing back and pointing forward. It's pointing back to the creation story. It's also pointing back to another moment in which tens of thousands of God's people were in the wilderness. He had just delivered them from slavery and then he had just drowned Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. And they were all sitting out in the wilderness and they started murmuring and complaining. Did you bring us out here to die? There's no bread. And they started complaining to Moses and Moses started complaining to God. And God tells Moses, don't worry about it. I got this. And he sent down for 40 years manna from heaven. For 40 years he fed them. The same God who sent down manna into the wilderness every morning, except the Sabbath, for 40 years, is holding the five loaves and the two fish in his hands. This is Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. This moment is also pointing forward. Jesus is the king, and we're reading about the king's feast. The prophets of Israel had foretold a coming feast. You can read about it various places. I love Isaiah chapter 25. It's a passage that talks about the end of death, the end of oppression, people being rescued from the power of evil and sin, hope for all nations. And in verse 6 it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, that means Yahweh, the commander of angel armies, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Everybody say feast. He'll make for all peoples a feast of rich bread, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich bread. Uh, a well-aged wine, uh, bread... I messed it up the quote. Go read it. It's Isaiah 25. It's in the book. And uh, But it's a feast day. And that feast is talked about several times by Jesus. It is talked about at the end of the book of Revelation. We call it the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the day when from all nations, people who have trusted Jesus are being brought into His presence. And this marriage with Jesus is being consummated. We're entering into a covenant relationship with him, We already entered into it when we trusted him, but that is being brought to its fullness where we live and reign with Jesus in a new creation in which there's no more evil and sin. You excited about that day, church family? And one of the recurrent biblical images is this is the king's feast. This is the king's feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now, between the creation story, between the story of manna in the wilderness, and between the, the marriage between the the of the little lamb, the, the, the guy who's the hero and the star of all those scenes is standing there. I just imagine he grinned. Can you imagine Jesus grinning? They don't, they're not even ready for what I'm about to do, right? He looks up to heaven. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. But there's one more feast that we've got to talk about. Notice the wording here. And taking the bread. Everybody say, took. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Everybody say, blessing. Then he broke the loaves. Everybody say, broke. And he gave them to... Everybody say, gave. Gave them to the disciples to set up before the crowd. Now, if you've got your Bible, keep your finger in Luke 9, but go over to Luke chapter 22. I want you to look at chapter 22... And I'm going to point out to you a verse that you hear at least once a month if you're a regular attender. Because on the third Sunday of every month, we usually take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. So come back next week, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Verse 19, Jesus is about to die on the cross. And it says, and he took bread. Everybody say took. And when he had given thanks, that's kind of parallel to the blessing. Everybody say thanks. And he broke it. Everybody say broke. And gave it. Everybody say gave. Does that sound familiar? He took it. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we've got ancient documents like the Didache, other, other ancient Christian texts, showing us that the earliest Christian churches, they wrote prayers that they would say when they took the Lord's Supper. They usually took it every week. And when they took the Lord's Supper, um, they would say these prayers, and they recognized this echo here from Luke. And they would use this formula. He took it, and he blessed it. He gave thanks, Eucharisto. He gave thanks. And he broke it, and he gave it to them. And they were making a connection that the same one who created the fields and the water and human beings, and who fed the children of Israel in the wilderness, fed them manna, and who fed the five thousand, and who will feast with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that person is giving us a feast every time we take the Lord's Supper. But here's the most amazing thing he's saying, Jesus is not only the host of this feast, he's the meal. Because he's saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And what it's pointing to is this reality. If you eat food, you will be hungry again in a pretty short period of time. Some of these teenagers, this is why Melissa had to work so hard. It only takes them about 15 minutes, right? And they're hungry again. It's taking me a little bit longer these days. Metabolism slowing down. But if you eat food before long, you're going to be hungry again. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 35, right after he fed the 5,000. Jesus is the feast. What he's saying ultimately, if you don't need to fear because I'm giving you myself. On the cross, I'm giving everything for you. And then I'm rising from the grave and I'm sending you my spirit to dwell inside you. And Jesus is saying, if you have me, you will lack for nothing. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. If you keep reading in the Gospels, Jesus does another miracle just like this. Four thousand families present that time. And then right after it, the disciples start stressing because they forgot to bring bread. Don't you find it encouraging that they are just as slow as we are? Because some of us, I'm not naming any names, John Mark, but some of us, even after spending, experiencing God's miraculous provision over and over, still lay in bed at night stressing over our problems. But what Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a feast. I'm the host. I'm the meal. You're my guest. I know you've sinned too much. Come to me in faith. I will welcome you. I'll forgive you. I'll heal you. I'll transform you. And I will satisfy you. And if you have King Jesus, you have everything you need. That's what he's saying over and over and over. And the disciples got to participate in the miracle, just like the little boy. He's saying, not only am I going to do that forever and forever, but for now, I have a mission for you. If you will just take a little bit of time and a little bit of talent and a little bit of resources, a little bit of money you have, and put it in my hands, and then go serve your community, watch what miracle I will do. That's what he's saying. I told you there was two words I really wanted to focus today. The first one we talked about for a while at the beginning. Everybody say, welcomed. But the last one, here comes at the end of our text. Go back to Luke 9. Verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked of broken pieces, which is a lot more than what they started with. Y'all register that, church. Trust Jesus. Go live on mission, sacrificing for him. You may be afraid, but if you take a courageous step of faith, even in the midst of your fear, you'll end up with more than you started with. But the word I want you to notice is in this word, satisfied. They all ate and they were satisfied. Everybody say, satisfied. Only Jesus can satisfy. Only God can satisfy. The saints, the God-knowers, were the people who knew that. Jared was talking about the Psalms a little while ago. And in the Psalms, over and over, we find the people who really knew God saying things like, My soul thirsts for... You, my soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. They talk about feasting on God's presence, being satisfied with his love, which is more satisfying than a food feast, a regular feast. They they were people who recognized that all the other yearnings and longings and hungers and thirsts that we have, are just like a little signpost pointing to our deeper yearning and hunger and thirst, which was a yearning for God. We were made for God. Some of you all know the famous quote of Saint Augustine at the beginning of the confessions, he says this prayer he says to God, You you made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And we can testify here, Church, anybody ever tried to get satisfied with success? When you succeeded, were you satisfied? Anybody ever try to get satisfied with the perfect romantic relationship? It's okay, baby. You can be honest. Did your marriage satisfy me all your needs? Y'all don't want to say it. I know the truth. It may be great, but you still hungry, right? That was probably a wise decision. I say that out loud. Anybody ever tried to... Find satisfaction through money, excitement, adventure, sex. We could just keep going down the list. They're all good gifts from God. He wants us to enjoy them. But in His wisdom, He made it that as soon as you enjoy it, you find that you are still hungry. You want more. There's more to life. What's the next adventure? We keep searching, going for the next thing. There's only one who could satisfy. What's His name, church? His name's Jesus. And if we've tasted Jesus, we've experienced forgiveness and love And peace and wholeness, which is unlike anything the world has to offer. But we're still hungry for more, which is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 said, uh, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because I desire to depart and be more fully with Christ, which is better by far. Meaning, there's more Jesus yet to come. There's more Jesus yet to come. The marriage supper of the Lamb... There may be literal food there, probably so, because we've got literal bodies. But what it's really about is feasting on Jesus. It's about the presence of Jesus. Only Jesus can satisfy. Now, I want to invite you to stand up for a second. We're about to sing a song of praise to God. We're about to worship God. But as we go, and as give we you a go, moment to pray, give you a moment to pray. pray. We usually, pray. Take, we a usually take a, now, a moment now to close our eyes and hold our hands in a posture of receiving. And as you do that, I want to remind you of two... Amazing truth from our text. Jesus shows us the welcoming God who welcomes you no matter what's going on in your life. And Jesus shows us the only one who can satisfy. He is the only one who can satisfy. He's the God of life. He's the bread of life who can satisfy our hungry souls. And I just want you to take a moment in prayer and uh, talk to Jesus. Be honest with Him about your loneliness. Be honest with him about your hunger and thirst. And just come back to him and tell him only you can satisfy. Thank him for what he's done for you. And if there's any fears or resentments you're holding on to towards him or others, this isn't just a moment to say, I want empty hands that are open and receptive to whatever you have for me, Jesus. Now, if you take a moment to pray, I'm going to say a prayer for you before we sing. Holy Spirit, at the beginning of this service, we ask for your help and we thank you for helping us today. Thank you for being with us. We need more of you. We need you to keep working in our hearts, even now, and as we pray, as we sing, and as we leave here. Lord, our sinful, insecure hearts really struggle to believe that you welcome us with open arms, that you're like the Father in the parable that Jesus told us about a loving father and two prodigal sons who runs out with open arms but that's who you are God you're the welcoming God so we praise you for that and pray that our hearts would learn to rest in that truth and that we learn to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God Lord we we confess to you that so often we've looked for satisfaction in all the wrong places and come up disappointed and we just want to recenter and come back to you and say Jesus only you can satisfy Jesus you're the bread of life you're the Son of God. You're the Savior. We ask that even as we pour out our hearts in song now, that you would be re-centering our hearts on the truth that only you can satisfy. As we rest in you, there's peace, there's joy, there's fullness of life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.